Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. I'm here with Doug Elliott of Oliver Wyman. Doug is a partner in Oliver Wyman's financial services and public policy practice and heads the Oliver Wyman Forum's Future of Money Initiative, where we are also often very lucky to get to work with one of his colleagues and a senior fellow at the forum, Larissa DeLima. Welcome, Doug. Thank you very much, Jess. It's great to be here. So let's get started off today by talking a little bit about the Oliver Wyman Forum's Future of Money Initiative, uh, specifically just tell us about it and, and kind of how you're focused there. Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone who doesn't know, Oliver Wyman is a management consulting firm. We have an in-house think tank, the Oliver Wyman Forum, where we try to focus on issues that are of importance to uh, senior officials and executives that we work with. It became clear over the last couple of years, that the future of money was one such issue, that it's going to dramatically transform the way finance and the economy works over the decades ahead. And there, as you know, Jess, a ton of questions about how it will evolve and how it should evolve. With the Future of Money initiative, we focused on uh, digital currencies and how they're likely to, as I said, change finance, change the economy. It certainly looks to be a, a lot that is ahead of us in terms of potential changes to, to both finance and the economy. I know that a number of reports have come out this year, both from that initiative and just more broadly across all of our women. I do want to address a few of those, but before getting into that, I'm always fascinated by you create kind of a list of top themes um, in finance for the year that, that you see and are of, of interest to you, but also things that I think the, the entire industry really should be focused on. And I'm curious as to what a few of those themes are this year or have been and how you're seeing them play out in the digital space that you'd highlight. Yeah, thank you, Jess. I am particularly proud of those pieces. Uh, I did one on January 6th this year. I have to say, though, I have an unfair advantage in this because the core of what I do is to speak with heads of central banks and their direct reports, heads of regulatory bodies globally and their direct reports, and senior people at finance ministries who care about the financial sector. And talking with them and with senior executives in the financial sector, it's pretty easy to see what the issues are likely to be. And so what I came up with in January largely turned out to be what we have collectively been talking about. So one was inflation, interest rates, the combined impact of those changes on the financial sector. A second somewhat related one was financial market instabilities, because I do worry about that. My, my personal view is if we have a serious financial crisis in the next year or two, it'll stem from the markets more than it will, for example, from the banking industry. Third topic, of course, is digital assets, which we'll go into in the rest of our time together today. Uh, fourth is climate risks in financial services and how to calculate those. And then a fifth is a recurrence of concerns about credit risk as a result of the macroeconomic problems. I really wish I'd done six and I had geopolitics. And I think I would have had that if I'd had six. Now, I would have had it on China and the U.S., but at least I would have had it in there because I felt a little silly 
a month or so later with the invasion of Ukraine and all of the geopolitical impacts and impacts on the economy and on finance that came out of that. Uh, but generally, I'd have to say the issues I just named are the ones that are still top of mind. I suppose I'd throw in one more broad one, which is I'm worried about levels of government debt in many countries, the emerging markets, and also parts of Europe. I do worry a bit that we might have a milder repeat of the euro crisis. Definitely milder, but that would still be uh, troublesome for everyone were that to occur. With that, let's let's talk about a few of the reports that kind of stemmed from and certainly picked up pieces of those topics that you highlighted in some of those themes. And you explicitly mentioned digital assets. And, and as we know, there's a rainbow of, of different areas within the digital asset sphere to attack. So let's start with one on central bank digital currencies, even within CBDCs, there being different different types of, of CBDCs and many different issues at hand. So I know that Oliver Wyman had done a, a report earlier in the year with JP Morgan, if I'm correct. It was titled Unlocking $120 billion in Value in Cross-Border Payments, How Banks Can Leverage Central Bank Digital Currencies. Why don't you uh, share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, one of the things people all know is most problematic and has the most frictions in the payment space are cross-border transactions. So what we did working with uh, JP Morgan was to really try to lay out what are the possible ways in which a central bank digital currency might be meshed together to allow global transactions to work much better. And there's a lot in that report, so I, I won't try to summarize it other than to say, as you go through it, there are indeed, and this I'm sure is a low estimate because this was the readily identifiable costs, $120 billion a year being spent on fees of one kind or another for these cross-border transactions. And we believe, in the best case anyway, that you could knock that down to about $20 billion resulting in $100 billion a year of greater efficiencies, especially for those on the banking side who are listening to that there is the point that one person's fees are somebody else's revenues. So we are talking about a, a significant transition over time uh, of the industry so that correspondent banks, for example, would play a much lesser role in this. You'd have a lot less free float where banks are benefiting from the fact that money comes in and won't be going out again for, say, three days. Once you move to a much more instantaneous type of transaction, you have changes to liquidity. You have a whole series of, of changes, and the report tries to both talk about those in more detail and also talk about three or four broad structures that explain how CBDCs could be used in this way. Another report that then touched on central bank digital currencies, and actually I shouldn't even say touched on, completely, uh, you know, was dedicated to, to them, to CBDCs, I noted was a report that Oliver Wyman did together with AWS. And this was titled Retail Central Bank Digital Currency from Vision to Design, a Framework to Align Policy Objectives and Technology Design Choices. 
So really diving into the retail side specifically of of CBDCs and why the reason for this particular kind of report and and what should our listeners be taking out of this? Sure. That's that report I was one of the co-authors on and we put we put a year into it. So I think we all hoped we'd maybe do it in four months or something. But this turns out to be a really complex area. And also, we very much benefited, and I think AWS did too, from bringing our two different perspectives with their very strong technical understanding and the policy and finance expertise that we brought. But bringing those two worlds together meant we had to spend a lot of time just making sure that we had a common understanding and that we really were thinking through issues in a way that reflected both the technical side of it and the policy side. Now, reason we did this is because while the policy arguments for and against retail CBDC are reasonably well balanced, I happen to be one of those who think that for most jurisdictions, they come down on the side of you should have a retail CBDC. So I'm glad to see the trend towards this. You have to confess, if you're honest, that there are significant counterarguments as well. But for reasons I can go into, if you'd like, the politics of retail CBDCs are much more positive. And so our belief, certainly my own belief, is that retail CBDCs are nearly inevitable across the world. And it's just a matter of time. And some of them, the Chinese are virtually there. They're, they're now doing proofs of concept with 200 million people, which seems to me to be a pretty close to full launch. The digital euro is a year or so away from being formally announced. They're still theoretically studying, but it's completely clear reading the tea leaves and even just the headlines and things people saying in speeches, this is going to happen. So you've got strong momentum, and I can go into that more, but our, our conclusion has been for some time, this is going to happen. So let's focus on how can we be most helpful in having it be optimal? And we particularly did this report because of two reasons. One, we've seen too strong of a two-track approach in many jurisdictions, including the U.S., which has had a technical track with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and MIT. And the policy track has, has been relatively quiet until a little bit under a year ago, I I would say. But when you proceed with those two tracks, there's the danger of ending up like the Transcontinental Railroad could have, which is that one started from near Kansas City and San Francisco, and they built the rail lines, and they just really hoped they met in the middle somewhere. And that's too big a risk to take from a policy point of view. So part of what we were trying to do is to say, You really have to closely tie the policy analysis and the technical analysis. What we did in the report in that regard was we laid out what are the key policy issues that you need to decide early and which ones can you defer for flexibility? What are the key technical issues you have to decide early and what can you defer for flexibility? And how do those key issues in policy and technical side intersect? How do they affect each other? So a lot of our report is about that. But another area we felt needed a lot more attention than it had been receiving is the business model that will result 
once you've launched your retail CBDC. By this, I mean pretty much all the major central banks have made clear that they do want an intermediated model, meaning you're not going to have the central bank working directly with the individuals in the economy. You're going to have banks and tech firms sitting in between, uh, most likely providing a digital wallet as the way that they provide that interface. And as you look at it, this actually produces quite a large role for banks and for these tech firms that step up to do a similar thing. It's more of a custodial role than the core banking business of taking deposits, but it's still going to be something banks do a lot of. Because of the centrality of these intermediaries, you need to make sure that the design that is produced by the central bank is one that encourages the appropriate behaviors. So give you a couple examples. You wouldn't, for example, want to create a design for your CBDC that creates such a high network synergies, you're going to end up with one or two or three dominant intermediaries have the issues that we have with the big tech firms today, where there's a lot of concern about competition. Kind of at the other end of the spectrum, you could end up setting it up in a way where the intermediaries have very little incentive to make this thing actually work or to do it in the way that would make it work well. And then you might have very little take up. And there, you could imagine a whole, whole spectrum of ways that you could mess this all up. If you haven't paid attention to that private sector role. Now, everyone in the policy community recognizes this, but there's been a tendency implicitly to treat it as something you can deal with after you've made the big tough decisions up front about your policy issues and your technical issues. Whereas when you look at what needs to be decided, the business model is going to flow very naturally out of those initial decisions. So you need to be thinking from the beginning and ideally engaging the banks and the other private sector players so you have appropriate input for this. So Doug, the question of interoperability really that you were you were getting at about potential central bank digital currencies that would be built by different jurisdictions at different times if they proceed, you know, really is a key one. If these proceeded, we would hope that we'd end up at a at a global well-functioning, interoperable payment system that would be an improvement versus aspects of what we have today that perhaps in, in areas are a little bit patched together or have areas for improvement. And I think that that's such a, such a great analogy that you bring up in terms of the, the railways and the uh, just kind of full faith that if you built one from one side and the other, that they would somehow meet in the middle and that that's not the way to go about this today, that that full faith is not enough and, and the importance of being more deliberate about what those key um, technology designs are and how they flow into then the business model is, is really, really important. And I, I would note that in the last few months, I feel that more comments from the BIS, and both in some public speeches, as well as some reports, I think have acknowledged increasingly the criticality of exactly those points, Doug, that you bring up of recognizing that jurisdictions, while moving at different paces in their development, 
will need to coordinate around some key decisions to succeed in a in an interoperable future. So perhaps you know you you were ahead of your time already. <laughs> I think the report was in March, if I if I remember correctly, and and we'll see that come to fruition. I will hope so. There's a lot of goodwill. At, but boy, it's going to be really complex, that interoperability across national borders. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I couldn't agree more in terms of the technology designs um, do directly flow into then impacting the business model question. It's not a fully after the fact question. And I, and I do think if, if one waits to answer the business model until after the fact, we're going to have a tough time answering it in, in some instances. <laughs> Very, very much something I, I would I'd hope we focus on. I, I know that there's one other report that I wanted to uh, touch on today before addressing kind of broader digital asset questions and, and other issues. And that's the, I believe, an annual report on banking that you did that Oliver Wyman published together with Morgan Stanley titled Climate, Crypto, and Competing in the Cycle. It focused, uh, if I recall correctly, on on wholesale banking primarily, um, and named a few areas for um, reasons for optimism, as well as some some concern, but still looking out over the horizon in the space. And one of those issues um, that it looked at was the digital assets revolution, and stated that this revolution may launch a new asset class and disrupt legacy businesses, but the industry has the expertise and the model to transform cryptocurrencies into an investable asset class for corporate and institutional clients and potentially shift to more efficient technology and operations in their core business lines. Why don't you tell us about this, Doug? Sure. Basically, there are many people out there who either believe in the intrinsic value of, in particular, Bitcoin, that tends to be where the the kind of the true believers are in terms of core underlying value. Or there are many more, I think, who are somewhat agnostic about that, but believe that these prices will go up over time or that they want to, to dip in and out on speculating on that. If you think about it, it's a lot like commodity markets. You need end users for commodities for there to be any real market. Uh, you wouldn't have people speculating on wheat if there weren't also people who wanted to buy the wheat or to sell the wheat. But, but if you have those end users, and we can talk later if you want about who the equivalent of end users are for a commodity like Bitcoin. But if you have them, there's also a tendency for investors and speculators to develop an interest in trying to to make money off the price movement. And when you look at wholesale banking and investment banking activities, they can make a lot of money off of people moving in and out of assets. In fact, as many of you have observed, one of the saving graces of the last year or so for the investment banks has been, there have been periods of great volatility. And price volatility and high trading volumes can lead to a lot of money for you know, market makers and brokers and all the, ver- all the various ways that wholesale banks and investment banks participate uh, in the markets. So there's no reason that 
the banks shouldn't be able to do this as well for digital assets as they're well, we'll come back later, I think, probably to talk about crypto winter and is this a crypto ice age, which I don't think it is. But assuming this all does bounce back and get bigger, as I do, uh, there's a real opportunity. Now, that said, there is the potential for the banking regulators to simply make this impossible or too expensive. The Basel Committee has proposed capital requirements for digital assets that are really quite onerous, for example. So we'll see how things develop, but I do think that the natural forces of the markets are pushing towards banks being significant players in the digital asset markets as facilitators, as I said, as market makers, as uh, helping firms to, to introduce digital assets that they create, et cetera. And I'll give you one example of how onerous it is. In general, they're shooting for a 1,250% risk weight for things like Bitcoin. Now, 1,250% risk weight for a bank that runs itself at the regulatory minimum of an 8% capital ratio means that you'd have capital equal to the amount you could lose if the value entirely vanished. But banks don't normally run themselves at that minimum 8%, and in some jurisdictions, they're not even allowed to be that low, even if they wanted to. They tend to be running themselves more like 12% or higher. And at 12%, you're talking about carrying one and a half times as much capital for Bitcoin as you could even lose, which is absurd. I, I also think about, you know, all the, the lessons that, that banks and asset managers and, and many players in the financial system have learned in terms of risk management and, and credit risk, um, operational risk, many, many different kinds of risk management over the last, you know, couple of decades. And certainly since the financial crisis. And, and recognizing that those many of those players are really, I mean, they're the experts in managing risk. That is what they do um, all the time. And so it, it strikes me a little bit funny that the people who would be most expert at the management of risks are perhaps, at least as of right now, perceived to be those that should not be participating in <laughs> the development or testing of of such risk on, and I think of that on behalf of consumers, if I'm a consumer and I would like to gain exposure to digital assets in some way, then, you know, I may want to do so through a relationship that I already have that I've trusted for a long time. Um, and that may be my bank. If they, you know, can't do that because of regulations, then I may go elsewhere and, and the elsewhere may be, um, you know, a, a set of, you know, institutions that's also very adept at risk management, but it may also not be. And it certainly presents uh, challenges for customer desire to participate in these markets as well. Absolutely. And look, this is certainly an argument I've made to many policymakers that just by pushing digital assets away from the banks, which are careful and highly regulated, doesn't mean they'll go away. It means they'll be out there with the less regulated or unregulated intermediaries and other players. And we saw with the investment banks in 2008 that just because you've decided you're not going to protect them doesn't mean they may not blow up and force you to step in afterwards. So 
yes, I, I very much regret that the bank regulators are in general so keen on keeping the banks from participating in a big way in this area. Many, many challenges yet to come. So with that, I, you actually mentioned crypto winter and let, let's go there. And I actually, you mentioned a crypto ice age, which I hadn't, I hadn't actually heard somebody use that phrase yet. I, I, I love it. Why don't we talk a bit about that? How do you see, you know, how, just how are you feeling about the, the volatility that we've seen over a number of months and now, um, you know, somewhat, I don't even want to say settling, but a bit of a settling at a, at a lower price point for some time as there continues to be a lot of uncertainty and kind of shaking out of, you know, what players are going to make it out of, of this period um, and be kind of the, the ones that stay with us for the long term. So love to hear your reactions and just thoughts about how to think about it. Absolutely. Now, I have to start by saying up front, it's incredibly hard to know what the right price is for a digital asset. One of the concerns policymakers have is, is to some extent valid, which is for standard financial assets, you can look at underlying cash flows or you can look at comparables or you, there's all sorts of ways that you can get some sense of what the, a fair range of price might be. With digital assets, most digital assets, and here I'm not talking about stable coins, but rather unbacked crypto assets like Bitcoin, for example, the value is much more based on sentiment, based on whether the people who own it place a high value on it or a relatively low value on it. So I don't know what the right price is going to be. But what I do know is that for the major crypto assets, they do have a devoted base that will treat them as having continued value. For example, with, with Bitcoin, sorry for continuing to bring up Bitcoin over and over, it's just sort of easier to explain a lot of things with that. And it is, by a significant distance, the largest of the digital assets. But much of what I'm saying applies to the others as well. I mentioned the equivalent of end users before. And I've written uh, papers about who those end users are and what the implications are. But for Bitcoin, in addition to people who are taking a position on where the price will go, either as investors or speculators, I do believe there are the equivalent of end users. And I put them into four buckets. There are libertarians and techno-anarchists who basically want money without the inconvenience of a government attached. And they don't trust central banks. And they believe a global decentralized rule-based currency is the future. And in particular, Bitcoin has the great bulk of those people supporting Bitcoin as that global decentralized rule-based currency. There's a second group that isn't particularly ideological, but doesn't trust their central bank and their government. And some of those are hyperinflation crazies in the U.S., or UK or wherever. But many of them are very sane people in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, increasingly Turkey, who simply look at what their central bank is offering and opting instead for a global decentralized rule-based currency. You've got a third group who highly value privacy. And all criminals fall in that box because they need the privacy. But many people who are not criminals also place a high value on privacy. 
And then there's a fourth group that I a little bit lazily just lump together as technical users. And they might be somewhat more, say, with uh, Ether, but they're people who believe that blockchain is going to create many revolutions in different parts of the economy, and that for some of them, you need a digital currency to make them really safe. And therefore, they want to have some sort of digital currency to make it work. And I go into all that just to say, there's actually a substantial number of people when you add those four boxes together. For instance, libertarian presidential candidates in the U.S., have gotten 2% or more of the vote. The Pirate Party in Germany, which is a techno-anarchist party, in some state legislatures there, in their, their Lander, they actually had more than 5% of the vote. So there are a lot there ideologically. And of course, we know many people are in countries where they're troubled about how their central banks are operating. And many people value privacy. And quite a number of people believe in blockchain and and. Uh, believe digital currency is helpful for that. So I think there's a strong enough, large enough group of people to put a base to how low prices can go, even though I don't know what that base is. But I do think that prices will come back to some extent, at least. Interest will come back. And there are, as you well know, genuine technological advances that are occurring spurred by digital assets. And also, of course, the metaverse. To the extent that the metaverse takes off, you need digital currency. And ideally, one or more common digital currencies that could be used across different of these metaverses to help tie them together. Yeah, so in the change in prices of digital assets over the last number of months, or just the, the great uncertainty that has existed in the, in the market for some time, then I think we've also seen the same uncertainty, understandably so, um, play out throughout applications of decentralized finance then. And a number of companies in the DeFi space or entities in the DeFi space that have either struggled or been kind of bought out in a fire sale fashion um, or you know potentially disappeared. Um, I uh, admittedly haven't kept my finger on the pulse of every single one of them during this time, but certainly a lot of the same volatility and uncertainty of where the market will go. If you think about the application of these technologies insofar as decentralized finance then goes, which doesn't necessarily require a cryptocurrency at all, but to date has really been facilitated on the standpoint of the money layer by stable coins. What are your hopes for the positives that may come out of decentralized finance and any thoughts that you have, you know, also about navigating these challenging times right now. Sure. And let me start out by saying that when I first look at decentralized finance, it scared the hell out of me because you can imagine widespread decentralized finance operating in a way that would exacerbate risks. And of course, we've, we've seen some blowups there. But the idea that it would be kind of out there, nobody's sure who's in control of what, essentially unregulated, was pretty scary to me. However, the more that I've looked at this, the more hopeful I've become about the positive aspects of this, which is to say much of finance today is built around human-based processes. 
which is why, for example, we might need, you know, two days to settle a securities transaction or even longer, because there's a whole series of steps we had to create because humans need time and they make mistakes. Uh, the ability to move to automated processes where you could have, for instance, matching up a buyer and a seller of an asset by reaching out globally to anyone who's interested and doing it nearly instantaneously and executing at almost no cost. There's tremendous potential efficiencies and improvements in the effectiveness of markets if you can capture that. What I'm hoping is that regulated DeFi turns out not to be an oxymoron. That is, that there's, that there's an important portion of DeFi that can actually be adequately regulated and that we can therefore find ways to have the relative safety that comes from sound regulation combined with the massive efficiencies that can come from DeFi. And as I'm sure you're, you're well aware, a number of people in the policy community have pointed out that many entities involved in so-called decentralized finance aren't particularly decentralized, that you might find that a given entity is still largely controlled by the original developers, for example, or that there are governance tokens, but one entity owns the great bulk of the governance tokens and therefore can effectively make the decisions. The more that it's possible to have an entity or set of entities that are clearly responsible ultimately for the key decisions, the easier it is to envision regulation actually taking hold. Look, one of the things we need to acknowledge about the whole digital asset space is both among skeptics and supporters, there is significantly too much ideology and too much attachment to labeling things in certain ways. I think we need to take a pragmatic approach here on all of this, including DeFi, and look at what are the benefits that we're trying to get and how can we best achieve them, whether that is what somebody might call purely decentralized or it's a kind of hybrid. In fact, I will say in general, I think you're going to see a lot of the progress in finance in this area over the next couple decades is going to be in hybrid mechanisms where we find ways to marry the benefits of traditional finance or traditional approaches or traditional regulation with the benefits of the immense level of innovation that we're seeing. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about yet, but I do want to hit on is stablecoins more specifically. There is just a, um, say a cacophony or just a, a great amount of movement in the stablecoin space across globe um, recently, many different jurisdictions moving to regulate or start start coming up with potential guidelines for regulating stablecoins and kind of separating out, I think increasingly so, separating out that uh, algorithmic, quote, stablecoins, you know, being a totally separate animal versus others that are in fact, you know, more likely to be stable than than those. Along those lines, you know, there's been a lot of discussion here in the U.S. in addition to, to other jurisdictions. And, and some of the questions that have been brought up most recently have been around the potential, you know, do you look at regulating them at, um, as a more like financial market infrastructure or do you look at regulating 
them more um, along the lines of, you know, deposit taking kinds of actions where you, you have, you know, in the case of the U.S. have like FDIC insurance behind deposits, like, did, you know, how do we think about that? Is that appropriate here or not? There are many different kinds of questions that have been raised publicly, kind of high profile recently. I'm curious as to whether, you know, what of that that you've been tracking, what of that you have been thinking about, and what you think is notable to date in, in any of those discussions? Absolutely. There's an um, optimistic view of where we are in terms of achieving the policy consensus, and there's a pessimistic view. I tend more towards the optimistic one, but the optimistic view is there's actually a huge amount of consensus developing among the policy community anyway about how you want these stable coins to operate and be regulated. The fighting is much more about who regulates them. But if you step back, you know, as I mentioned, I spend the bulk of my time talking with senior regulators and central bankers around the world. It's clear that they've decided that there's no place for algorithmic stablecoins, at least not in the core of the financial system. And they're very skeptical about crypto-backed stablecoins. So where, what you're clearly going to see is regulation will come out, which says you need to be backed 100% by fiat-denominated assets, you know, traditional financial assets like, uh, you know, short-term treasuries or uh, high-quality corporate short-term instruments, that sort of, that kind of thing. So there's a consensus that you need to be 100% backed by fiat reserves, that those reserves have to be invested in assets that are of high credit quality, short duration, and highly liquid, as well as very transparent. Depending on the structure of, of sort of the corporate structure that you decide for these, you might have a smidgen of capital on top of that as well to protect. There's a pretty strong consensus along those general lines. Now, the pessimistic view looks at this and said, well, that's all well and good, but we can't figure out which of the three broad categories of regulation we're going to use here. I think it's more important that we know how we want them to operate than it is exactly who regulates them. Though that, I mean, that's important too. But as I said, I take the more optimistic view of this. I, I think certainly there are there's an order of operations to be had um, in figuring out how, how they should operate, what the business model will be, who the regulators are, et cetera. And there, there certainly is a, a bit of a science and art to, to figuring them all out and plenty of uh, optimism to be had. So with that, I think we'll, we'll wrap up today. Thank you, Doug, for being with us today and for sharing your views on, on a range of topics um, in the digital asset space in particular, crypto winter and crypto ice age, which I will take with me um, after this. And we'll, we'll be talking again soon. So thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. Um, you can always find the episodes on the IIF website as well at IIF.com. 